0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour on this lovely Memorial Day weekend. We have one of our favorite guests on the line from Massachusetts, Mr. Charlie Pierce. We call these episodes Checkpoint Charlie Charles writes for Esquire.com, he's a sports nut, a Twitter fanatic, uh, he's got great taste in music, we're going to be talking little Bob Dylan, which we usually do anyway, and uh, he writes for Esquire.com, uh, but he's been on the scene forever, I call him my psychological morphine drips for all things political, and there's a reason to up the dose these last couple of weeks. Mr. Pierce, how are you, uh, how are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Happy Memorial Day. Yes, happy Memorial Day. We, uh, uh, we have a lot to owe the fallen on this weekend, and it's uh, good to remember the sorts of sacrifices millions have made for us to be able to talk on the radio and listen to music and, and uh, enjoy this country. Charlie, uh, last week uh, we had the... Uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates Love Boat Tour. And I, th- I thought it couldn't get any weirder. And then this week came along and said, Last week, hold my beer. <laughs> it's like, how insane have things gotten?
1: I, 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 it's inexplicable to me that everybody in that entire party seems to have lost their minds. Uh, on Friday, they refused to take a vote. To defend themselves, essentially, right? And not not just they refuse to set up the commission to look at the insurrection; they refuse to even talk about it.
0: Yeah, spineless cowards would be one way of putting it. This
1: uh, is your own survival, guys. These people came to hurt you.
0: Yeah, well,
1: and you y- don't and, and because it might hurt you in, in a, a midterm election a year down the line. You don't even want to talk about
0: it? Yeah. Well, and then McConnell comes out and says that's exactly why they voted against all this stuff for the midterms. Uh, you know, what about this, you know, the great uh, John McCain and others, uh, this whole country over party concept? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you there?
1: Yeah, I'm there. I'm eating. Oh, Sorry. OK. That's all right. Just, uh, just, I'll, I'll put the for
0: I'll put the food aside. Uh, <laughs> just, just uh, mark that so you you know how to edit that, Brent. You know, uh, Mister no, Pierce. Well, go ahead. I
1: think it's been a long time since country over party was a factor. Yeah. Uh, certainly within my lifetime because I'm old, but I think starting boy, I don't know, I'll say 1990 or uh, 92 when Bill Clinton got elected and that seemed to drive everybody in the Republican Party out of its mind for the first time. It's just never come back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even McCain, while he adhered to it to a great extent, didn't adhere to it religiously? I mean, he, you know, in 2000 he was calling the, uh, the, uh, the Christian Right, the agents of intolerance, and by 2008, he was going down and talking to Terry Falwell's school.
0: Well, yeah, right.
1: Sooner or later, sooner or later, what you perceive to be your political necessity takes over your conscience.
0: Well, I That's remember. What it seems to me, anyway. I remember back in that era, and uh, let's not forget uh, Newt Gingrich when the first time I heard somebody said. I hate Bill Clinton. Now, I wasn't a big fan of Nixon. I wasn't a big fan of Reagan's. But I don't think even in my wildest leftist Che Corvera dreams would I ever said, I hate my president. Do I dislike him? Yes. Do I disagree with him? All the time. But there was just this sort of animosity and animus that's developed that is now, it's just, it's, it's an everyday toxic occurrence.
1: Well I came i came uh I came very close with Nixon, and I certainly have no qualms about saying I hated the last guy. yeah, uh, I don't have a problem with saying that at all. Uh, I hated him for what he did. I hated him for his policies. I hated him for for his lasting effect on everything. and I still hate him for the fact that he's got everybody scared of him. On the in in the Republican Party.
0: Well, and here's what blows my mind. Yesterday, I think I read a headline on Slate. dot com, and it said, and at the, at this point, where well, this was right before my brain exploded, uh, and my brain <laughs> threw out my ears. It said, "Can Trump run, can Trump run for president from prison?" <laughs> you know, please, I can't. Well,
1: we even- we had. You know, we had uh- uh, James Michael Curley, got, the mayor of Boston, got elected to Congress in prison, <laughs> but uh, I, that was a long time ago.
0: Oh, but the president of the United States—that's you know—that's a couple notches up. That's you know.
1: That is, yeah, that, that is true. It's not uh, not something. Uh, but the the interesting thing is, at least the interesting thing to me is, if that if that circumstance came about. How would the Republicans stop him? Right. (laughs) Yeah. They would not be able to stop him.
0: Yeah. Now, what is, is there a rumor that he's going back on tour again?
1: He is going back on tour. Wow. I'm getting like two emails a day telling me to send him money so he can go to his rally in Florida in a month or so.
0: (laughs) I'm guessing you haven't sent him any change yet.
1: I have not sent him a check, (laughs) no, but I'll tell you. It's not for lack of trying.
0: Yeah. Um... (laughs) what uh yeah it just it, it boggles the mind and uh you know when they talk about the percentages of republicans that that don't believe biden is is the elected president of the united states i still like to think that might be a large percentage of the republicans but those republicans is a smaller percentage of the actual electorate so i'm not completely flipped out yet but um it's still too high of a percentage, right?
1: It's more than, it's more than that fifty three percent of the Republicans polled think Donald Trump is still the president. Oh my God. I mean, it's not just that they, they don't recognize Biden.
0: Yeah, it is enough to make you want to move uh beyond our shores what um what do you do you think? You know, and it's kind of the, the gripe we've all had with Democrats. They don't fight back hard enough. You know, whether it's all of the uh, uh, voting rights, uh, voting suppression, all those issues going on. Do you think the Democrats have formulated strong enough offense on these issues?
1: I think we've done a good deal. Uh I think their inability to control the caucus on getting rid of the filibuster is their biggest flaw. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, other than, you know, hypnotizing or kidnapping Joe Manson, right. I'm not sure how, you know, what else they were supposed to do. But yep. they certainly, absent the direct, absent the Philadelphia, Philadelphia very good, <laughs> absent the filibuster, they get a lot done. Yeah. And they?
0: Or at least have a fighting chance to get a lot done. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, the numbers are up. Uh, We're putting in, what did I hear last night? Uh, When the last guy was in, we were creating 60,000 jobs a month. Now these last several months, we've been creating 500,000 jobs a month. And uh, uh, people are getting vaccinated, which is good. And so, I mean, I think the Biden administration is moving in the, the right direction I just kind of wish we had a guy like James Carville leading the uh, leading the charge. You know, like Lee Atwater was way back in the day. I mean, he's a real bulldog taking these guys down every day.
1: Well, the you know the important thing to remember is that both Carville and Atwater were campaign advisors. Yeah, I mean Atwater wasn't working out of the White House. Neither was I. Mean Carville was for a while, but he wasn't the he wasn't the policy guy. Uh, and, you know, and, and there is a difference between the people you rely on to get you elected and the people you rely on to help you govern. I mean, that's that's just the way it is. I do wish I mean, I, I wish I had a better sense. That the Democrats realize that they're not going to have control over the entire government much longer. Yeah. You know, and that the window is closing.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe it's it may, and you know what? Maybe they've done all they can do. Maybe they may, may I mean they obviously can't get rid of the filibuster because they can't budge two of their own members. Right. On it, even though it's absurd. Uh I think the one thing they could do now uh would be to have Nancy Pelosi act independently and appoint a January sixth commission. Yeah.
0: you can do that. you can f- do
1: the Benghazi thing. Uh, because clearly the Republicans aren't going to budge on that, right? And it needs to be done.
0: Oops, it and then, mo- then I think
1: the you know, then I think the Democrats should pull out every stop they have yeah. to get their agenda passed.
0: And how do what how does that the...
1: means? And that means that means voting rights. That means police reform. Everything they got on the, everything that's on the runway right now. Yeah, they can do it with reconciliation. Do it with reconciliation.
0: Well it does feel like we are making you know we're just uh a few days past the anniversary of the tragic murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis it does feel like we are making some ground towards police reform what's your fee- feelings
1: on that oh I think so uh I think certainly it's the most serious conversation we've had on it in years yeah you know I mean we, we and 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 we're seeing a national conversation on it we're not just seeing you know we're not just seeing you know, kind of, you know, we had an event here in our city, so we'll talk about it here. Right. These things are all being linked together. It mainly because for some reason the police can't stop shooting black people. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's healthy. Uh, and I think that I, I, I think that in a lot of ways, uh, the murder of George Floyd was a watershed event. Uh. But again, you know, it gets, it gets to the Senate, and it stalls because you need 60 votes right, on everything. Because the Democrats won't do anything about the filibuster.
0: Yeah. What is... Uh, it's, it's almost kind of seemed to me over the, the years that man Joe Manchin's has always been a pretty lukewarm Democrat to begin with.
1: Well... He's a Democrat from West Virginia, which the Democrats haven't won, you know, in a presidential election, I don't think, since LBJ. Yeah. But, to me, he seems to be enjoying the power he has a little bit too much.
0: Yeah, his moment in the sun. he
1: He seems to like to be, you know, for him to say, as he did yesterday, that he's protecting the filibuster cuz he didn't want to destroy the government that's just silly right we could have a government without a filibuster we had one for a long time yeah without a filibuster
0: yeah and and that filibuster is actually what's kind of destroying the government right now
1: right now it's it's paralyzing it for sure
0: yeah hmm Charlie what uh I swear to God uh Matt Gates of seeing yeah. some picture that he took with one of these on one of these trips with one of his associates. I swear to God she was wearing braces. Did you see that picture, or was that my eyes <laughs> oh i no, I didn't. <laughs> it was like, okay. I know where this is going. What, what's your feeling? What, what do you think is going to happen to Mister Gates?
1: Oh, I think. you I know, mean, I've seen, I've seen them act. I mean, I've seen the same kind of act before. They generally burn themselves out. I think. I don't think there's any question he gets reelected if he's not in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's in real trouble. I think people. I think his his running buddy there, the the most influential tax collector since the sheriff of Nottingham is <laughs> yeah. in Florida. Uh, you know, I think he's singing like a bird right now.
0: That guy's a piece of uh, work.
1: Oh, man, I don't know how this guy... You know, it's Florida, so anything's possible. Right. But I don't know how you're... You know, a county tax assessor accrues all that influence.
0: Yeah, it, it's great. And then making... Uh, what, did, what when, they, um, when they went to his office, they found these, you know... Uh, a dozen driver's licenses that yeah. belong to other people—that blows my mind.
1: Do yeah, I-, I mean, I mean, I mean, the guys—the guys running, a, you know, an international criminal conspiracy from a from a county tax office. <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, I gotta give him credit for, I gotta give him credit for ambition. That's <laughs> <pretty
0: fair. laughs> yeah, and then these guys go and according to uh, attendees at these parties are um sure. snorting cocaine and doing ecstasy and uh celebrating all their uh nefarious activities. It it blows your mind because at one point when I used to think about Republicans, the first guy that came to mind because I was a kid when he was the big-time Republican was Barry Goldwater, and I just don't see—I yeah. don't see Barry partying like that.
1: No, I mean I—I—I I, I, I miss the old, you know, the old conservative Republicans who didn't believe in fun. Yeah, <laughs> now, they were a lot more reliable; you could depend on them.
0: Exactly.
1: I mean, there was—I mean, I—I I, I don't trust the, the the modern hip, you know, ecstasy doing Republicans. Yeah, I, just, I think there's something against the natural laws of politics. Yeah, on there.
0: well, you know, we
1: are Democrats, by God, the party of vice.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: And how, we're proud of it.
0: How times have changed. And then you have who was it? it was either Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan said, no, Republicans, we are now the beer and blue jean party.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Kevin McCarthy wearing his purple suit said
0: that. Yeah, they're all freaking insane. We've got speaking of reliable. We have Mr. Charlie Pearson. For the whole show on the Wall of Power Radio Hour tonight, and uh, we're going to listen to. We're going to go to break, and then have uh, Mr. Pierce on for the whole show. Wall of Power Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is set to. Checkpoint Charlie episode. God seven eight or nine. We've got Mister Charlie Pearson for the whole show tonight. the night. Charlie, the question that uh, I've got to ask: When did America become this dumb?
1: Well, uh, I wrote an entire book trying to figure that out, and and uh, the best I can the best I can determine. Uh, There's always been this kind of undercurrent of, uh, you know, powerful undercurrent of fantastical belief. Uh, And at some point in the late 70s or early 1980s, uh, the conservative movement decided to become the vehicle for it. Yeah. It just hasn't stopped since then.
0: What was the name of your book, Charlie?
1: Idiot America. <laughs> How Stupidity Became a Virtue in the Land of the Free. <laughs> which, you, which you still can get, by the way. You? And, uh, on Amazon.
0: Okay. Say it one more I'm time.
1: I'm thinking about writing a second volume. Didn't
0: you? Give us, uh, Give us the title one more time.
1: It's called Idiot America. How Stupidity Became a Virtue in the Land of the Free.
0: I'm ordering it as soon as I get home tonight. What? Yeah, well, you've got uh, there's plenty enough for a second volume.
1: Oh, I've been piling up notes. Are you kidding? <laughs> I got a whole box full of notes. What? What are what,
0: what were some of the highlights in that first book?
1: Well, I went and visited the Creation Museum <laughs> in uh, in Hebron, Kentucky, uh, and my my twin avatars. This will interest your local audience. Uh, I followed two people as kind of my my guides through the history of American craziness. One of them was James Madison, the ultimate rationalist, mm-hmm. and the other was a guy named Ignatius Donnelly, Okay. who congressman from Minnesota. Interesting. And he was he was uh, yeah he's uh, he was really he was really kind of nuts. Uh, the the. Thing he's most remembered for is that well, he only served one term in Congress. Uh, he tried to start his own town uh, out in the boondocks past St. Paul, and uh, that collapsed when the when when the railroad failed. Uh, but he decided that he was going to become a researcher, so he spent all his waking hours in uh, Washington, which were a lot of them, I guess, because he didn't do a lot in the Congress, uh, at the the Library of Congress. And he is responsible for almost everything people now believe about Atlantis being real. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Donovan's song, Atlantis, all that stuff about Way the, down the poets and everything.
0: Way, down, right. way down. Way down yeah, straight, that way down below
1: the ocean, way down. That's all straight out of Ignatius Donnelly.
0: What years was that? When did he rock uh, walk he this kept, earth?
1: He kept, I spent two days at the Minnesota Historical Society in Saint Paul because he kept these in, these incredible diaries. I mean he wrote everything down. <laughs> and so I spent two days going through the notes he was taking for uh for his Atlantis books. And he, I mean, he's an, a man, and he, he's a very typical American crank. And he came out with, I think, it, from his diaries, uh, I got one line that summed it up—that summed up the entire book, which was he wrote, "I believe I'm right, or if I'm not right, I'm at least plausible."
0: <laughs> I'm going to put that on my next business card.
1: I swear to God. That, I mean, that's going to be the epigraph. If I write a second volume, that's going to be the epigraph.
0: <laughs> I love it. We've got Charlie Pearson for two more sets of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the third set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We just heard some Bobby Dylan. He's called Bobby Dylan When that record came up up there on the Iron Range, Queen Jane approximately which was the song that turned my guest, Mr. Charlie Pierce, on to the Bard of Hibbing. Tell us about that hearing, Bob, for the first time, Charlie Pierce. Well,
1: no, I mean, I, I was familiar with the famous, you know, folk songs that preceded uh, that. I, I knew what blowing in the wind was. I knew what times they were changing were. You know, I mean, all the all the you know, the songs that everybody else did. Right. I mean, Paul and Mary and Judy Collins and, you know. On and on and on and on and on, but I bought Highway 61 uh, on vinyl because I liked like a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember, but we were notoriously stupid in that a lot of times we bought albums just because we liked one song on them. Right. Uh, but I, I I accidentally put side two on first. Huh. And I heard Queen Jane and those wonderful. Down diving chords, yeah, on that song, just absolutely floored me. And then I realized, you know, it, it's it's it, there's no bridge. I mean, there's, it it breaks every damn rule in the book for a rock and roll song. It just keeps long. It has no bridge, right? Uh, something in it is out of tune. I can never figure out what. But I, you know, and then I, you know, the rest of that album just floored me. Yeah, and that was it. That that was what touched it off. Now and I've been following you know I've been following the muse ever since.
0: Well, you know, is there's a great uh, website that's kind of Dylan centric, although it covers a lot of similar types of music and and just similar types of music. It's called expectingrain.com. dot com. That's run by a, a guy out of Norway. And on Dylan's, I go to. A it's d- run
1: by a guy in Norway. Yeah. Well, what's Excellent. it? Yeah. Not, Nor- not Norway, Minnesota, but Norway,
0: Norway. <laughs> Norway, Norway. Oslo, Norway, as a matter of fact. And okay. uh, I think the guy's a librarian, actually. But what's interesting, if you go to that on Monday and Tuesday, and the days before and days after Bob's 80th birthday, there was tribute. So people would post like articles from wherever. And there was tributes, Charlie, from around the world, Portugal, Spain, Brazil, Ecuador, Japan, Iceland, you know, um, and it's just,
1: probably played all those places.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's just uh, it amazes me that, you know, number one. Why, you know, I'm not, I've never been a Bob Dylan is Messiah guy. I'm a Bob Dylan is an Iron Range guy. That's always been my thing. I used to uh, hitchhike over his house when I was 13 or 14 and just stand out in front of Seventh Avenue in Hibbing and look at that house and go, you know, the guy that walked out of that door changed American culture. And 80 years later, uh, well, or 60 years later, he's still working and still has the same job who does the he's, same I
1: mean he's, he's still doing yeah I mean that's exa- I mean that that's the iron range work ethic
0: It's exactly yeah you
1: know, that's, it. that's the guys who go to you know who went into the pit uh, for you know 50 years
0: Yeah
1: and, and their sons followed him in and their grandsons followed him in
0: and doing a lot of double shifts through that yeah. time I I tell my elevator pitch about Bob Dylan is that he has imbued within him the four or five major character archetypes that you can still find any Friday or Saturday night on a bar on the Iron Range. Number one, uh, the biker with the black leather jacket, the blue jeans, the belt on the side, the white T-shirt with the pack, uh, you know, uh, camel straights rolled up in the in the shirt sleeve. The guy that just got off the second shift, the miner, having a cold one on his way home from the bar. The uh, the uh, guy protesting at the bar because the drink wasn't strong enough and it cost too much. The joker at the bar doing card tricks, playing with loaded dice. And then the weirdo in the back drinking cheap brandy reading James Joyce.
1: <laughs> and, and now, I mean, I had another one, which is basically... The old guy at the end
0: of the bar has been sitting on the same stool for sixty
1: years. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, uh, I mean, who knows all the stories?
0: He knows all the stories. Well, you know, we when uh we we're talking about your buddy Ignatius there in the last set and uh yeah. how he was around kind of got going in politics, you know, during and after the Civil War. That's the other thing about Bob Dylan, he's a huge civil war buff. And oh, yeah, it, I mean no, yeah,
1: He's a huge history buff. I mean, and he—I yeah. mean—he he 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 investigates, you know, the history that that doesn't make the, the academic history books. Yeah, you know, he, he investigates history through murder ballads and and you know poverty songs from from forgotten, you know, coal towns that don't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean that's that that's the tradition he's chosen to be part of,
0: and, and I
1: admire the hell out of that
0: and he you know he refers to the, he goes those songs are my religion,
1: yeah, and it's not i mean and it's 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 very hard not to not to see the spirituality in what he does, yeah i mean he's he's obviously explored all kinds of it, and you know it it peaks out at appropriate times. I always say that one of the one of the things that that really convinced me on his intellect, and I didn't need a lot of convincing. But the one thing that really did what? What a good DJ he was!
0: He, oh, I love that, that show.
1: Radio program was magnificent.
0: Theme time radio R. lessons.
1: My, you talk about history lessons! My God.
0: Yeah, you know, I think those. I think he did a hundred episodes. Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio R. That was to me some of the best work he he's done. That period it was
1: well, I mean, you know his, ab- his ability his ability to put a set together, his ability to to, 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 to to intersperse the records with you know what he knows about you know what he knew about history and music and and you know whatever the subject was at the time i mean he did an, you know, he, did, he did an episode on whiskey did an episode on baseball right.
0: Well, and that—that—that's great. Well, that was
1: the that was the American that was the that was the American radio show.
0: Yeah, abso- why he was doing it, absolutely. And uh, uh, and that that Borscht Belt humor that he's got, um, you know, Dylan's always been. I've I've read enough books and I've seen him in concert enough to know he's a he's a. a you know, it's got a great sense of humor, and I remember his Mother's Day show. He says something as he was entering a song. He said, yes. He goes, I bought my mother-in-law a chair for Mother's Day, but she hasn't plugged it in yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I
1: mean, yeah, right now, a lot of stuff. I mean, Desolation Row is a very funny song. Yeah. Looked at it in one way. Desolation Row is a stand-up comedy routine.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: it really is. And you know Bob Dylan's "115th Dream" about Captain Ahab going to New York.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's
1: a fun song.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I was uh, actually had the pleasure of being up in Duluth uh, this past Monday, celebrating his 80th birthday at his boyhood home. They had a birthday cake. They had cupcakes. They had musicians. <laughs> They read a uh, proclamation from the St. Louis County Commission, and I, there was eighty or a hundred people there, young to old. And uh, I remember when Dylan played in Duluth in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, there was he said something like he goes, yeah. He goes, there was about twenty thousand people there, and right on the shores of Lake Superior at Bayfront Park. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I, I grew up right up there on the hill, and uh, used to have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, she was so into herself. Uh, her name was Mimi. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, he's uh, the other great.
1: He's eighty years old now, too. That's the amazing thing.
0: It is amazing, and so
1: turned into the old man of the mountain.
0: Yeah, and I, uh...
1: I, I mean, I remember what you know. I remember listening to to uh, to. Uh, you know, not dark yet. That's got to be 20 years ago now.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is a song about it not getting dark yet. Uh, but it's getting there. And Yeah, it's getting there. I mean, that's a cold song. That's a song with, with that, that doesn't mince words.
0: You know, there was a great, um, uh, moment that my nephew Jordan Metza had, he went over to, uh, do an interview with B.J. Rolfson, was Bob's 11th and 12th grade English and humanities teacher. And uh, he had a little boombox in his basement office. And as Jordan walked in, he was listening to Not Dark Yet. And uh, he, uh, I believe, was really the key to Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize for literature. Uh, he was a very uh, – legendary high school uh, teacher, and uh, he told me I had a chance to interview him. He said Bob was up at a uh, funeral for one of his brother's uh, relatives, and as Bob was walking out of the synagogue, he walked up to B.J. Ralston. B.J. goes, you are my greatest influence. Now, B.J., you'll like this, Charlie. He was a really old school teacher, never – Never got in front of a class without a suit and tie. But Ben Bob came back from New York in 1964, this was before he walked out on the Ed Sullivan show, but he was scheduled to play. So he knocked on BJ's classroom door for, what, third or fourth hour, and BJ came out and said uh, – he always called him Robert. He goes, Robert, he said, just hang on. He goes, I'll be done with class in 15 minutes. And when I was talking to BJ, he said – I really should have invited him into the class and introduced him at that, that point. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, B.J. Rawlson tracked that guy down. So um, we, uh, yeah, I mean, 80 years old, and I heard he said... And, of a- course,
1: well, the, the 80th birthday has, you know, on Twitter at least, brought together all of our extended family. Yeah. I mean, our friend Ann Daniel in, in New York. and
0: She's the best.
1: And you and me, and oh, and then having having Levon's birthday be the same week. Yeah, yeah. Bob Dylan, Levon Helm, and and Miles Davis.
0: They, they don't All get, had
1: birthdays in the same week.
0: Don't get any better than that.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine uh, my life without Bob Dylan in it, and it's not like I've listened to him every day. In fact, when Blood on the Tracks came out, I didn't like that record at all. I didn't listen to him for 10 years because it didn't have that wild mercury sound. And then when I yeah. finally got smart again and got off the weed long enough to listen to the record and go, my God, what a masterpiece. I go, no, this is the mild mercury sound. Yeah.
1: No, I you know I, I wrote uh, years ago in the aftermath of, of 9-11, Esquire asked me to write or uh, more like collate but I wrote a lot of them, 101 Things That Were Still Right About America. And I, I had, he was obviously one of them. And what I wrote was that one of the real phenomena, about, at least in my, in my case, songs that meant nothing to me when I was 20 mean the world to me when I'm 50. Right. It's like he knew my future. Right. You know, you you don't understand this song right now, but you're going to go through life. You're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. No doubt. We've got Charlie Pierce on. We're going to uh, take a little break here and be back. One more set with Mr. Pierce on Checkpoint Charlie on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. And your father to your sister He explains That you're tired of yourself And all of your creations Won't you come see me Welcome back to the last set of the Wall of Power radio hour. This is your host Paul Metz. We've got checkpoint Charlie, our guest Charlie Pearson. We just got another about another 5 minutes. Keep talking about Bob Dylan. Tell us tell us uh, <laughs> some things you never told anybody else about uh, your respect for the man.
1: Well, I one of one of the best nights of my life. I was in uh in uh Atlantic City uh, back in my sports writing days. Uh covering the Mike Tyson Carl the Truth Williams heavyweight fight. And uh he was Bob was playing, he was what this is he was touring with uh GE Smith and those guys from Saturday Night Live. Yep. And Steve Rowell was his opening act actually. Okay. And they were playing at Bally's Grand outside. And I talked to my friends. I said we got it we got a chance to see Dylan at a casino. And this was this was, you know, before he started doing uh Victoria's Secret ads and winning right. Oscars and stuff like that. And I said, we have to go see Bob at a casino. And one of the great joys of my life was that the late Pete Hamill was there covering the fight. Wow. And he asked if he could come with her. So it was me and Michael Farber, who was writing, eventually wrote for Sports Illustrated, but was writing in Montreal at the time. And I can't remember who else. There were two other people. And Pete and me. Wow. And we went and saw the show and Pete was very taken with Steve Earl. He thought Steve Earle was just a genius.
0: Yeah. This
1: was, uh, right around the time of Copperhead Road before, before Steve's life went off the track. Yeah. And, but we also, you know, Bob put on a hell of a show because that was, a, that was a really, really good band. Uh, huh. you know, oh yeah. Uh, and so we went on afterwards, uh, to a bar and of course Pete wasn't drinking and he was, he was off the bottle, but the rest of us had some beers and Pete started telling us, you know, Greenwich Village stories from back in the day. Yeah. About hanging out with with Bob and the Clancy brothers. Oh, my God. And it was just just a great night. One of the best nights of my life. And Pete... I mean, I adored Pete. Pete was just one of the great people. Well, and he
0: wrote... uh, Did he write the liner notes to the original... He wrote the
1: liner notes to to Blood on the Track. Yeah. I think he won a Grammy, actually. uh, Yeah.
0: And then, although in later versions, those liner notes somehow... We're not on. Yeah, they,
1: they, 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 the Lion Notes got beat up pretty badly by a bunch of snotty uh, music critics, and and Columbia took them off the uh, record. But I still have the original Lionel. So Does, I still have them.
0: the. Uh, so it must have been the good old days at either the uh, the Lion's Head or the White Horse Tavern with the Clancy Probably brothers. Most,
1: actually, most oh. of the Lion's Head. Uh, back in the de- back in the days when uh, Jessica Lang was one of the waitresses.
0: Wow! Did you ever get a chance to uh, hang out at either back in the day, Charlie Pierce?
1: Oh, I I lived at the Lion's Head when I go to New York. Are you kidding?
0: Yeah, right.
1: Uh, the White Horse I never I never really went to the White Horse, but uh, a lot of sports writers and a lot of writers in general and and you know hung out at the Lion's Head and my friend George Stubble, who preceded me at Boston Phoenix and got me hired there. He used to attend bars there, so every time we'd go to New York for a ball game or Red Sox series or something, we'd always wind up there.
0: Well, Charlie, we've got to meet uh, for a beer at the Lion's Head on Christopher Street. Because
1: well, well, it's gone. Unfortunately, Lion's Head's gone, unfortunately.
0: No, the Lion's Head has, well, now it's called the Kettle of Fish. But the, the original bar, which was the Lion's Head, is still there.
1: Really? I didn't know. I know the Lion's Head
0: had closed. Yeah, the Lion's Head's closed, and now it's called the Kettle of Fish. And the Kettle of Fish is when all those Dave Van Ronk and, and Dylan— Yeah, I was going to say,
1: the Kettle of Fish was around the corner. That
0: was on McDougal, but now it is yeah. in the same building where the Lion's Head was. You still walk downstairs, the bar's well, there, and then you go there's, around
1: there's, the corner. no yeah. Let me know the next time you're in New York,
0: my friend. Well, and I'll tell you what, uh, for a guy that went to Marquette University like you did, Charlie Pierce, the guy that owns it is from Wisconsin, and now the old lion's head, which is now called the Kettle of Fish, is Packers Headquarters in New York City.
1: Oh, is it really?
0: Yeah. the That's funny.
1: It's still a below the sidewalk joint,
0: right? Yep, yep, still below the sidewalk, and the guy's name is Patrick. Who runs it? And uh, we got to know each other years ago when I was in there. And uh, his sister went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, so we had a lot of stuff in common. But we will uh, put that on our to-do list now that things are opening up. We got about a minute left, Charlie. What are you looking to, uh, forward to doing that you haven't been able to do for the last year, year and a half? Oh,
1: I gotta get. I gotta, are you kidding? I gotta get down to Washington and see what these guys are up to. <laughs> I, want, I mean, I'm looking forward to just reporting stuff again. Yeah. I mean, I, I this was this, you know, the last, you know, year where I literally didn't, you know, all my reporting came out of books or off TV. Yeah. I can't work. Like, I can't work like that. <laughs> I got to, I got to, I got to, you know, I got to feel the blood in the events. I got to, you know, I got to smell the news. I can't be sitting in my living room. Well,
0: we can't wait to read your first person accounts. We've had uh, Charlie Pearson for the whole show tonight. Checkpoint Charlie. God knows episode whatever. He's a reoccurring guest because he's so good, and we get such great response. Yeah, I'm like in I'm,
1: I'm, I'm like flu Season.
0: <laughs> so, I come around every year. Yeah, right. Hey, we, we love you, Charlie. So um, we got a beer date at uh, the Old Lion's Head, the kettle of Fish now. Uh, we're going to try to get you and your buddy Jim Moore up here on his motorcycle at some point up to the Iron Range so I can give you a personal yeah. tour. And we're going to uh, go out with a pick of Mr. Pierce's one of his favorite Bob Dylan songs, "Blind Willie McTell." Thanks so much, Charlie. Have a great Thanks
1: week. Hey, there, Paul. We'll talk again.
0: Talk soon. Bye, bye. Bye now. The arrow on the duple Saying this land is condemned All the way from New Orleans To Jerusalem Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brett Johnson. We'd like to thank our sponsor, School of Rock at Edenbury. This show was recorded at the AM 950 Basement Studio in Prairie, which is neither Eden nor a prairie. We hope you will be enjoying this Memorial Day weekend and more. You can follow me at paulmetza.com. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. Oh.